This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. A mother puts her children into a refrigerator truck and asks, what else could I do? A runaway teenager comes of age on the streets, sleeping in abandoned buildings. A student leaves his war-ravaged country behind because he doesn't want to kill. Everyone among the thousands of people who come to Europe in search of asylum each year possesses a unique story. But those stories don't end as they cross into the West. In Lights in the Distance, acclaimed journalist Daniel Trilling draws on years of reporting to build a portrait of the refugee crisis as seen through the eyes of the people who experienced it firsthand. As the European Union has grown, so has a tangled and often violent system designed to filter out unwanted migrants. Visiting camps and hostels, sneaking into detention centers, and delving into his own family's history of displacement, Trilling weaves together the stories of people he met and followed from country to country. In doing so, he shows that the terms commonly used to define them refugee or economic migrant, legal or illegal, deserving or undeserving, fall woefully short of capturing the complex realities. The founding story of the EU is that it exists to ensure the horrors of the 20th century are never repeated. Now, as it comes to terms with the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, its declared values of freedom, tolerance, and respect for human rights are being put to the test. Lights in the Distance is a uniquely powerful and illuminating exploration of the nature and human dimensions of the crisis. Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Conservatives have suddenly discovered that they care about due process. Not, of course, when it comes to the fate of the millions of Americans churned through the country's hyper-punitive legal system into mass incarceration's modern-day gulags. Rather, their consideration for corroboration and evidence is reserved for powerful men accused of sexual harassment or assault amidst Me Too. Others have called for a public reckoning with the limits of punishment and made pleas for the principle of forgiveness, asking how much we should dwell upon misdeeds committed years ago. Not, of course, when it comes to the fate of ordinary people who did something wrong and are now serving draconian prison sentences as a result. That, again, isn't the concern for these Me Too dissidents. Their empathy is reserved exclusively for the powerful men who have been the public face of Me Too wrongdoing. Men who, by and large, have been punished only with the loss of a prestigious job and with public scorn. We are witnessing a powerful reckoning for powerful men in a society where men, and sometimes other who aren't men who hold positions of power, commit abuses with impunity. At the very same time, Many ordinary people are severely punished for committing abuses. 
That includes a lot of people who commit sexual or violent offenses, people who make up a larger proportion of the prison population than many on the left often acknowledge. The people in prison, in other words, are not just there for low-level drug dealing and whatnot, but also for doing awful things. And if we oppose mass incarceration, that's something that we need to struggle with. We're living in an incredibly strange moment. The debate over sexual assault and harassment, with calls coming from the right for perpetrators to be forgiven before the ink on the accusations has even dried, and well before amends have either been attempted or even really contemplated, have been confined overwhelmingly to men at the very top, men whose big sads at their loss of reputation and tarnished celebrity shouldn't stir the slightest bit of empathy from anyone. Too often ignored in these debates are ordinary people, victims, and perpetrators alike who find neither justice nor security nor mercy nor redemption in a society that is simultaneously not only permissive but also encouraging of sexual assault, and that also punishes certain people and not others so severely. I'm not so troubled that Bill Cosby received a 3-10 to year prison sentence given the extraordinarily large number of women's lives he violently rampaged through. I am, however, given pause when I think about how the representation of incarceration as ultimate justice will impact the much larger number of men and women who enter the criminal justice system every day. We live in a society where abusing women lands certain people in prison and others on the Supreme Court. Every structural injustice is lived and exposed on the individual level, and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and other women have revealed that our political economic elite is pervaded by profound intimate violence, forms of brutal interpersonal domination that are the everyday and microcosmic connective tissue of systems of domination as a whole. Thinking through how to connect these individual stories that more often than not play out at economic, political, and celebrity peaks to the systems that order the world that the rest of us live in, I don't think has quite happened yet. My guest today will help us start thinking about how to do just that. Lisa Dugan, a journalist, activist, and professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University, has written some incisive commentary on Brett Kavanaugh and about how the simultaneous acceptance and denial of elite men's rights to their subordinates' bodies exposes core truths about a power structure that dictates traditional morality while perpetrating brutality. The normalization of sexual violence and its disavowal is... In other words, one of the norms of heteronormativity under capitalism. A quick note before we get rolling. If you like this podcast, please support us with your money at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's The ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. If you support us with $20 a month or more, I've got a load of left-wing books to send you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please hit the pause button and make a contribution now. Okay, here's Lisa Dugan, the author of several books, including Twilight of Equality, Neoliberalism, Cultural Politics, and the Attack on Democracy, and Mean Girl, Anne Rand, and Neoliberal Greed, forthcoming in a few months. Lisa Dugan, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. You recently wrote about the question of whether Brett Kavanaugh 
doesn't remember attempting to rape Christine Blasey Ford because he was too drunk or whether he's simply lying. And you write, quote, in a way it doesn't matter, even if he does not remember that exact event. His entire account of himself is a lie, a permissible lie, for many, most, of the relevant decision-makers. It's not that they don't know he's lying. They do. They expect him to. It's his obligation to lie for himself and them. The lying about the attempted rape does not seem individual to me. He is participating in the deeply embedded structure of the open secret. Though official culture... The state church family says non-consensual sex is wrong. In fact, men have mostly consequence-free access to women and children below them in social hierarchies of race and class. Masters to slaves, bosses to workers, cops to sex workers, priests to choir boys, fathers to daughters. This is a really powerful point, and my question is, is it seems like it's in part a matter of hypocrisy, but also that hypocrisy is not quite a powerful enough concept to explain right. what you're getting at. Um, explain why you think it is that there's this simultaneous de jure prohibition on rape and its de facto encouragement amongst the powerful and what that represents and how that represents not so much a contradiction in the social order, right. but rather one of its or maybe it's a contradiction and one of its fundamental underpinnings. One of its constitutive features is one, one way that I'd, I'd put it. And um, I'll, I'll say, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian. So I think in the long term about how these structures work. And when I was listening, the days that I was, you know, listening to the Kavanaugh hearings and I'm watching television with all the commentary about it, I was also teaching um, a, a, an undergraduate class about the whole uh, controversy among historians from the late 90s over the uh, Thomas Jefferson-Sally Hemings um, relationship. And in in 1998, um, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed published a book making the case that Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings had a relationship. They had six children. And when that book was published, it was attacked by all the major historians of Jefferson, the preeminent Jefferson biographer, Dumas Malone, a whole lineup of them. They attacked it by saying it's not in his character, right? The Thomas Jefferson we know, right? It's not in his character to have done this. This is a calumny on not only the Jefferson, but on the history of the United States. Um, and the following year, though, DNA evidence demonstrated um, indisputably that the, sick, the descendants of Sally Hemings were also descendants of Thomas Jefferson, thus putting that all to rest. So I was in the middle of trying to teach that and, and to talk to students about the fact, about the open secret in that context, right, that slave owners had sexual access to slaves and everybody knew it, right? They lived in households with mulatto children. Jefferson's household had all the these children that were Sally Hemings's children that looked just like him, right? Everybody knew it. And these historians also knew it. The ones who were denouncing Annette Gordon-Reed, they knew perfectly well that uh, this was endemic, right? That um, um, mulatto children of slave owners, uh, less than fully consensual to outright rape of slaves, was a routine aspect of slavery. So the open secret, you know, is, is not just about slave owners and slaves. It's about boss 
bosses and workers, right? It's about um, priests and, and, and choir boys. It's about fathers and daughters. And that is that, uh, uh, you read the quote, that is that official culture says that this is wrong, that these relationships are wrong. And there's a very strong public face put up saying this is wrong and it doesn't happen. While right behind the that that particular scene, it's going on all the time. And uh, it's part of, it's embedded in, in structures of power. So it's not just about gender. It's the way gender is embedded in class and race hierarchies. So that sexual access is one of the perks of power um, that goes on behind the scenes that then is officially denied. And this is a long, long-term embedded structure. And to see it as individual hypocrisy, you're right, is really to trivialize it and to misunderstand the larger structural um, uh, 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 the structural outlines of how this works and to look at, 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 at Brett Kavanaugh as an individual you know and say that he's lying well you know it's true he is he's lying about everything and perhaps the fact that he's lying about support for torture is equally too important you know to the lies that are getting all the attention right now but um, it to say he's lying is also to misunderstand really sort of what's happening. It's not an individual lie. It's a, it's an, you can see the entire Republican establishment lining up behind. Uh, they know he's lying, but they are committed to the public base of it's wrong to do what she claims he did, right? So he couldn't have done it. But And we will say that he didn't do it even though we do know he did it. Um, and that's the structure of a certain kind of power that's attached to class and race um, historically. And the, the really, um, you know, radical aspect of Me Too is ripping the open secret uh, up and, and exposing what goes on uh, behind the open secret. And all of these uh, uh, men and uh, who have had uh, the open secret work for them their entire lives are, are enraged and massively defensive um, that they are no longer getting away with simply putting up this front, although, of course, they are also getting away with it. They right? might very well get away with it. We'll see. Exactly. They are also getting away with it. But it's just to, to, to understand that simply as about lying or hypocrisy is to sort of not get the big picture. Pushing beyond the kind of implicit critique of hypocrisy that yeah. you made in this post and the more explicit one you're making now also seems to be getting at a shortcoming in this conventional liberal supposition that if if conservative hypocrisy is just exposed, yeah. then uh, then there'll be this gotcha moment and they'll sort of co- collapse on the weight of their own contradictions. What, what, what are we what are liberals missing well, I mean, after after since the election of Trump, it, you know, it's been really quite demonstrated over and over again that exposing the lie, right, is yeah. not effective, right? Um, and calling out, uh, calling people out for hypocrisy is is not effective. It doesn't matter. It doesn't work. Um, and that's because it's the larger structures of power in which it's embedded that have to be challenged, and not 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 understood as individual lies or individual hypocrisy, but as this 
this larger structure. And, you know, the Me Too movement is an incredibly diverse uh, uh, set of actions and efforts that are very incoherent. There are many different forms of what's being called Me Too. And and some of them participate in that kind of liberal, um, let's call out these individual men and get them punished, and that will solve the problem. And that really is not an effective way. Even if you put a few men in prison, it doesn't really get at the the structures. Um, so the people who are doing a kind of Me Too organizing like Tarana Burke or like um, uh, journalist Sarah Jaffe, who's done an amazing job writing about what unions are doing, what's going on at McDonald's and so forth, looking at the structural aspects of, of, of harassment and abuse and the way they're embedded in forms of racial and class power, that that is really getting at the underlying uh, issue, whereas calling people out individually um, is really only going to maybe punish a few individuals and actually not um, reach the structure that creates this as an ongoing, um, uh, an ongoing phenomenon. And when it comes to the very president of the United States? It's a terrible irony that as big an idiot and personality disordered buffoon that he is, in a way he understands the open secret in a way that that the liberal attack on it does not, right? He understands that he can lie openly and it won't matter because everybody knows it's a lie and it doesn't matter because what he's protecting are these structures of power. So he understands he can do that and that it won't matter that he's called out for lying. Um, in fact, you know, he's, he, he energizes people who are invested in that structure um, rather than undermining it, right? Uh, so it's, 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 it's it's an irony that he gets it right more fundamentally than um, liberals who are calling him out for all his lies every day, like the you know the talking heads on MSNBC who all day all day long are exposing, 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 and it has no effect um, because they're not really grasping the the structure of his lying and the way it works and why it works, and he actually does get it. This point I'm about to make might be a little too cute, but it does seem that the reason that liberals don't get it is because they fundamentally have an idealist rather than a materialist conception of politics. Well, yes, to, you know, (laughs) yeah, sure. Boil it down to that. Yes. (laughs) But it's also an individualist kind of narrative, right? That these are individuals doing bad things. And if we can stop the individuals from doing bad things, you know, then that is uh, how we achieve something like justice. When, in fact, you know, it's on the left, we we are always pointing instead to these embedded structures of power, and it's not about the individuals. Um, and I think the Kavanaugh hearing like makes that so clear because you have this phalanx of, of Republicans, you know, lining up to defend a person they know is lying. Um, and to claim he's not lying because they want to maintain the power that they get through the Supreme Court and, and otherwise. It's so, it's so obvious that it's about the structure of power and not about the individual, um, you know, whether the individual is lying or is a hypocrite or not. I mean, I think the display is so blatantly clear um, that, that that's the case, that it's a, a structure and not a personality issue. So you write, quote, the failure to believe and prosecute follows this structure. Higher status women are often believed even when they are clearly lying. 
lynching, most women are routinely disbelieved. To be believed, they must present as class-privileged and gender-normative. The struggle against sexual violence is a struggle against male sexual privilege within the terms of social hierarchies and the open secret. It's such a, it's so it's so important because you know the slogan believe the survivors it's all over social media it's on signs everywhere well that's a problem because you know if you if you are a historian and you know something about the history of racial lynching in this country you know that believe the women is not something that you can apply under all circumstances right as in uh, I. you know Emmett Till Exactly. And Scottsboro, right, as in over and over again, um, white women lying about being raped by black men. And you simply cannot walk around with a slogan that says, believe the women or believe the survivors, because, again, it misunderstands what's happening as, as only about gender when it is about gender, but it isn't only about gender. Um, and higher status women um, are, are much more likely, highly likely to be believed when they're making a charge against a lower status man. I mean, I'm using a word like status. I don't mean that in the you know liberal sociology sense. I mean it in terms of class and race, you know, structures of power that are sometimes, you know, uh, a smaller scale like teacher-student. You can call a status, but it's embedded in a, these other larger structures of power. So, you know, it's 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 um um it, it's a mistake to say believe the women and then leave it as or believe the survivors and just leave it there as though. So this is a, a question of, 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 of gender when it is a question of gender, but it's embedded in these other structures. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember or you have read about, you couldn't remember, you're too young, but you could have read about <laughs> um, the Satanistic child abuse uh, charges from the uh, 1980s yeah. where all those daycare workers went to jail. And some of them went to jail for like 100, they got 100 year sentences and so forth. Well, people were walking around, you know, a lot of them got out later, right, when it was exposed, when the whole thing was exposed. But, you know, it's McMartin. The McMartin case is the really famous case where these children accuse daycare workers of having sexually abused them using Satanistic procedures. Um, and these were investigated. And then there were a whole ream of these. Debbie Nathan has written extensively about these cases, but that went all across the United States where daycare workers were convicted of Satanistic child abuse in, in, the, in daycare centers. Um, and and uh, everyone was walking around around with buttons that said, believe the children, right? Everywhere, believe the children. And there were feminist social workers who were counseling children. And there was a very strong sort of social pressure, believe the children. But before too long, you know, the fact that these were usually fantasies and that um, the people going to prison were daycare workers <laughs> um, uh, at a moment when uh, women going back into the labor force meant many children were going to daycare and there was a strong uh, pressure to discredit right daycare in order to discredit um, the equality of women at work and so this you know large and to drive women back into the home exactly by by making everyone afraid of daycare centers and daycare workers so it's not that conspiratorial. It's a deeper kind of, you know, cultural process. Um, but that's another instance where, you know, 
sexual abuse and charges of sexual abuse function in a complicated way and where believe the children was really uh, an unhelpful, I'm saying that's an understatement, right? It was uh-huh. ultimately a reactionary response. So in the present, you know, we do want to expose the open secret every place that we can, especially where the, the differences of power are so extreme, like prison. We should be talking much more about sexual abuse and harassment of both women and men in prison. Which is utterly um, systematic, but not on the front page, yes, not the exactly, target of major exactly, exposés. Exactly. And so, you know, and it's we old should... news. It's it's a totally open secret. It's 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 old, it's old news. In fact, it's the butt it's the butt of lighthearted jokes that people outside of yes, prison make. Yes, on crime yeah. shows on TV, they're always threatening, you know, we'll put you in prison and then you'll know what it feels like, right? It's this the total open secret about what goes on in prisons. Um so we should be exposing these open secrets and trying to do something about them and me too is a insofar as it's doing that has a really really radical potential but if it gets derailed in the other in the direction of exposing individuals right and 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 calling out individuals and also really falling into a kind of carceral logic right let's give them longer prison sentences let's punish them harder these bad individuals um that is that evades the structure that um leaves you know McDonald's workers, domestic workers, prison uh, people who are incarcerated, really at the mercy of uh, a kind of violent, um, violent structure of of sexual access that is part and parcel of these other systems of power. That's something that that I've been trying to think through a bunch, which is that there's this odd dynamic where defenders of the Kavanaugh's and Louis C.K.'s and whoever are so quick to ask, you know, when will the punishment end and where's the hard, where's the hard evidence? When it comes to these powerful yeah. men, sometimes before these powerful men have even lost their jobs, let alone been prosecuted and sent to prison, which few of them will be, and then the, this dis- and then only, of course, the black man is the only one so far who has gone to prison. Yeah, and the, and there's this disturbing irony yeah. here where there's this this outcry against being overly punitive with these powerful men who are rarely even punished at all. And then on the right. other hand, ordinary people, men and also women, who are serving increasingly lengthy sentences for sex offenses. And so there's a sharp disconnect between sex offenses as they're playing out amongst the powerful in the media and and these and the broader relationships between state and sexual violence in society and you know no one will talk about the the social environment makes it impossible to talk now about sex offender um, the restriction about sex offender lists and sex offender registries. That's a whole nother subject, and I'm, I won't go there on this podcast, but um, there's a tremendous incoherence about the concept of like uh, accountability and punishment around different kind, different people, different people, different sexual uh, violations. And um, it's interesting. Like conservatives to, suddenly have this like obsession with due process. I know. Yes. Well, or hearing, hearing Trump say um, uh, uh, men are, are, I have to be afraid now they could be charged with something they're not guilty of. Yeah, like the Central Park Five. But it's also striking to me that people who are supporters of prison abolition and, rest and transformative justice, right, who, 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 who spend a lot of time trying to think about alternatives to 
prison and to think about, you know, forms of, um, of, of, of restoration and transformation that um, are not primarily carceral, that that disappears when put him in prison as long as possible becomes the only, you know, becomes the only voice that gets a public hearing. So I think there's just a tremendous amount of incoherence around um, um, thinking about what happens, right? Like, I think some of the incoherence stems from common sense beliefs on amongst people on the left often that that prisons are just full of people who are there for for nonviolent drug offenses or something when in fact many many people in prison did something objectively uh, yeah ra- objectively wrong and that we don't want people doing in society murder rape assaults but but there are many you know there are many and i i follow this i'm really interested in it i find it complicated and i'm not sure i have it figured out for myself but um you know the idea that even if you're talking about a serial murderer there still is a way to think about alternatives to the kind of incarceration that we currently um you know default to um and i'm i'm interested in those conversations around violent crime as well as around nonviolent drug use. I, I just think thinking about that is a real challenge for people who are on the left of the Me Too movement is to try to think coherently about accountability. Um, because if what you're trying to get at is a structure, then individual punishment is not your primary goal. On the other hand, accountability is. So, you know, I don't think we've really thought that through. Um, uh, as it, it, it's, a, it's a state of... Um, of confusion, I think, right now about how to how to talk about that, how to think about that. Um, it's confused on multiple levels because you have you have the right who doesn't care about the ordinary people who are prosecuted for uh, violent or sexual offenses at all, but is suddenly extremely concerned about these powerful men who are not even being prosecuted, but just having their celebrity yeah. tarnished. And then on the left, you know, there I think you know people are rightfully calling for these men to. You know, not get confirmed to the Supreme yes. Court, and, yes. and well, to, I think that would and be to be minimal. I think publicly not shamed to the Supreme but, Court would be a minimal, <laughs> a minimal <laughs> accountability issue. But uh, yes, you know, and then there's just so many different. When we say these men, sometimes we're lumping together. Uh, you know, the term that gets used now very often as an umbrella term is sexual misconduct. And I, I've been watching that, the shift in the press between abuse, harassment, violence, to sexual misconduct, so that that's the term almost the entire mainstream media uses. And that's that's a slippage that goes very quickly into things like adultery, yeah. right, perversion. Um, and when they created the sex pest list in the UK, which was meant to be a kind of model on the men in media, the bad men in media list here in the US, in the UK, it was like men in, in parliament who have who who are believed to be guilty of, and that's, you know, abuse, harassment. But as the list went on, it included gay men who enjoy the golden showers. It included, you know, adultery, and uh, uh, it, it, start, it started to mix, right, abuse and um, harassment with uh, every kind of non-normative or uh, objectionable sexual behavior that under the banner of, in that case, sex pest. But in this case, in when we use the term misconduct, you you've uh, criticized aspects of the politics of of me too and as a result you've some of your comments have been the subject of some controversy as you're very aware in, in particular after allegations against deconstructionist scholar Avidal Renel became public you warned as you've warned throughout some of this conversation against aspects of a sex panic that could end up targeting queer people and people of color 
in particular. And in response, you received a lot of criticism, not so much about those more general points that you were making, I don't think, but about your connection of them to the Rennell case. And graduate students in particular accused you of, of, of obfuscating a clear case of a powerful advisor taking advantage of that power to to abuse or mistreat a graduate student. Um, you later wrote that you, I think, were, were thinking it through more mm-hmm. afterwards from the grad mm-hmm. student view. Um, I- explain what your argument was in that post and, and what you made of the well, criticism. Well, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a, a blog post. It was called Full Catastrophe. And it, it, it you know, I wouldn't say viral, but it, it got a lot of circulation. Um, and I wrote that actually before the, um, the, the legal document from, um, from the accuser came out, before his lawsuit was posted. Um, and so at the time that I wrote the Full, full Catastrophe post, um, I actually didn't know what all the charges were because Title IX um, requires confidentiality. I, I mean, it's another topic, but I think Title IX is kind of a disastrous form of redress. But um, it, it requires confidentiality, which meant that no one really knew the details because no one was allowed to say what they were. And then the accuser broke the confidentiality. He had had an agreement with the university, but he broke it. And then it all came out. But it all came out after I wrote that blog post. Um, and in the, in the blog post that, that circulated, um, I was trying to ma- I was making the point that, because um, I had been working for quite some time on collecting cases of queer faculty members, uh, especially queer of color faculty members who had been charged under Title IX with some really um, uh, crazy things, like a, a, a femme queer faculty member at, in, in a southern school who was charged under Title IX for being seductive in class because she wore short skirts and talked in a throaty voice, right? So I, I have a collection of cases like that that I'd been putting together of um, because confidentiality shields, we don't know what's going on. So I had been collecting those cases in order to eventually write something about why confidentiality is a problem. We can't know the disproportionality of either, you know, faculty of color, queer faculty, or other people being charged under Title IX. So I was already working on that before the Rennell case came up. So when the Rennell case came up, and I I wrote about that in the context of, you know, interpreting what happened here requires a kind of understanding that um, uh, queer communications are sometimes seen sexual when they're not, and that you have to have a kind of ability to read those. Um, and then I also um, uh, was uh, making a critique of Title IX and um, uh, its a disproportionate um, impact. So that was not the thing to say after the details came out, right? That, that was really, after the details came out, one needed to shift the point of intervention that one was making about about this case. Um, so after the um, so my my blog post got circulated, um, and people said that I was defending Ronell, which I was not defending Ronell. Or people said I was her friend, which I am not. I'm not a deconstructionist. I barely don't know her very well. I never read any of her books. Right? It was not about defending her or about being a friend. Um, but I was making these other points, um, which which in the wake of the details of that case seemed off point in a problematic way. So I wrote a a, a Facebook 
post after that saying, look, I reread my blog post now from the point of view of a precarious academic who has just read this lawsuit. Um, uh, and I can see that it seems insensitive. My rethinking post after that was saying, you know, from the point of view of, precar of a precarious uh, academic who has just read this, um, this, this legal brief, um, my blog post appears insensitive because it really is about the plight of faculty members who are accused of these crazy things. And um, it isn't from the point of view of students who are often not believed, not taken seriously, Title IX, which really is about, you know, the liability, protecting the university from liability. It's not about protecting anybody from sexual harassment. And so, uh, you know, I think my emphasis was um, off. You know, I wrote this before this, all this came out and the emphasis was off. And if I reconsider it now, I, you know, because I've been um, a strong advocate for graduate student and adjunct unions on my campus and, um, you know, forever. So I, um, I, uh, the fact that I was being misunderstood as, or I felt misunderstood as, you know, uh, having no uh, ability to give a shit about the students, I wanted to correct that. So I, I did that in a Facebook post. So although I think that Ronell um, quite you know, I never say I know the truth in any of these cases. I've been writing about scandal culture for 20 years, and I never say I know the truth. But I would say that the indications are that Ronell violated the sexual harassment policy. You know, that, that seems like that's the case. Um, and also, it's, 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 it's like these, you know, the workers are McDonald's, or, or it, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's like um, uh, being in an employment situation where you can't afford to challenge you're, you know, you can't afford to challenge uh, professors who have the ability to decide whether you're going to be reemployed or get a letter of recommendation and so forth. So that's very real thing. And, um, and that's what uh, unions are uh, so important for. And I really think that um, unions are the best place to adjudicate these sexual harassment claims, too, not Title IX, but unions. And here, um, Kate Griffiths Doyle wrote about this and, and, and suggested it to me. And Sarah, Sarah Jaffe has written quite a bit about this. But the un you know, graduate student and adjunct unions are um, really great places to take this on because they are not administrative structures tied to liability lawyers, like which happens with Title IX, right? The liability lawyers make sure the university is protected. Well, unions are, you know, a horizontal organization that can take a grievance and, 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 and negotiate um, and deliver it in a way that is really in the interest of the adjunct and the student rather than the university. So I'm hoping and happy to see unions take this on um, rather than um, administ you know, university administrations. A final question, zooming out from that. One point you're making is that there are a number of different currents of feminism that have different yeah. analyses of the current debate over sexual assault and har harassment. What are those different currents as you see them? And if you could just clarify where you situate yourself and then from there, more generally, how you think we need to move beyond punishing individual 
wrongdoers, though I think certainly some individual wrongdoers do held need to be accountable. held accountable accountable in, in some way, way. right? Um, and, and and prevented from going from going on with their you know from from continuing their activities. Um, but how do we move from that to this broader yeah. reordering yeah. transformation of society that destroys the system? Yeah, let's well, see violence. that you know that's the question for all of us in a big way across the board right now, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, right now the left is is at this point of of possibility where there's a mobilization and thinking and organization in a way that there hadn't been five years ago. Um, and yet, on the other hand, we're reaching, uh, feeling the limits of what we're able to do with things like this Kavanaugh appointment, right, where, um, where, where the structures of power, like, beat down on our heads in a way that makes it feel like, what, what in the name of God can we do? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a moment where it feels like it's full of possibility, and it also feels like it's utterly closed down at the same time. Um, so it's hard, hard. I don't think anybody has a, 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 a clear plan, like, right. How we, how we get ourselves from here to the, uh, to the, uh, you know, to the point where we can overturn these, um, embedded power structures, but at least we have to challenge them, right. And at the very least we have to challenge them and not just call out, um, individuals, but to challenge the structures. Um, so, uh, you know, the kinds of feminism, I don't want to be too reductive because it's a very, you know, the history of feminism is very complicated and there are many overlaps and many, you know, but so I'll, I'll, I'll let me say with the proviso that this is reductive um, is to say that, you know, there's a kind of, um, uh, um, of liberal feminism that is that that goes the, uh, along with me, too, in this challenge, the individual put them all in prison way. And there's a kind of um, radical feminism, which um, uh, challenges the structures of gender and the you know, embedded patriarchal um, relations, um, but doesn't really um, see them as embedded in class and race, the histories of class and race, or sees those structures as, as somehow less important than the patriarchal ones. And, um, and then there's a, a socialist feminism with a long, you know, contentious history of um, uh, challenging the larger structures and, and both challenging leftists who don't see gender and sexuality as deeply embedded in those structures. That's my, um, uh, that's the point that I, on the one side, right, and um, on the other side, challenging feminism to take class and race and the history of those structures seriously. So it's a double-edged challenge, right, going in both directions from socialist feminists. And I consider myself to be a socialist feminist. But the other, within the category of socialist feminism, you know, there's there's the sort of, the history of the sex wars, right? Um, and the history of the sex wars going back to the 1980s and even for, to the 19th century, but particularly in the 1980s, there were really strong debates within feminism about the place of sexuality and sexual desire and sexual hierarchy. And, um, and uh, there was a critique that came both from what were called, perhaps not entirely correctly, sex radicals and socialist feminists that were critiquing things like the anti-porn movement, anti-porn feminism. The Catherine McKinnon. Yes, exactly. So there's a long history of that, and that is playing itself out in the present moment around the Me Too movement in ways that aren't entirely visible to people who are not 
um, familiar with that history. So there are people who are critiquing me, too, from the standpoint of this longer history of sexual politics within feminism. Um, and their critiques are sometimes misunderstood, right, as being, um, you know, uh, defenses of, of harassers or something, when what they're trying to say is that, you know, if you say don't, if you critique the slogan, believe survivors, you're subject immediately to be mis being misunderstood as advocating for, you know, harassers or something or, but, but, and, and the, the critique of that, which comes from this longer history that believe the women is a problem. If you look at it in historical context, that's, that's a hard point to get across in this atmosphere. Um, but it's a crucial point. And so pressing on it is necessary, but um, not popular right now. Well, Lisa Dugan, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Lisa Dugan is the author of several books, including Twilight of Equality, Neoliberalism, Cultural Politics, and the Attack on Democracy, and Mean Girls. Anne Rand and Neoliberal Greed, forthcoming in a few months. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the emancipation of the productive class is that of all human beings, without distinction of sex or race. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.